Welcome to NFP's Insights from the Experts podcast. Each episode showcases timely expertise and perspective from members of the NFP community, delivering information, analysis, and solutions that address our clients' most significant challenges. Welcome to NFP's 2020 U.S. Benefits Trend Report podcast series. I'm Kim Bell, SVP and Head of Health and Benefits at NFP, and with me today is Chase Cannon, Vice President and Deputy Chief Compliance Officer at NFP. Chase, there's been a lot of things going on um, in, the, in the compliance world. When you were pulling together data for the trend report, what was the one thing that surprised you? Yeah, thanks, Kim. A lot has been going on, right? <laughs> I guess I shouldn't be surprised at this point, At this point, but from a compliance perspective, each year I look back at the sheer number of new rules and regulations promulgated or introduced by both the federal government, so that would include uh, both congressional acts, which would be new laws like the CARES Act or the FFCRA this year, which we'll talk more about, and then uh, the regulatory agencies, the IRS and the DOL, those are the agencies that publish notices and other rules. And then at a state level, right? It's just a ton of legislation and regulation that is published each year. And 2020, as we were preparing this trend report, seemed like it was amped up uh, even more, right? So kind of as background, we all have had to deal with this over the past decade with the ACA enacted over 10 years ago. And then sort of the 78 seven to eight year process we went through in receiving IRS, DOL, and other guidance every few weeks and every few months to help explain um, and, and outline those rules for employers. So trying to unpack, digest, and then implement those rules, that's a huge challenge for employers. And then with a change in federal power going over to the GOP in 2016, the last few years have amped up a bit with legal challenges and some changes in enforcement policies. So we had a little bit of a shift there and you could kind of expect that you would have more guys to deal with as an employer. And then, oh boy, we came into 2020, right? With our eyes wide shut and 2020 has turned out to be the craziest year yet. So um, just a lot of regulation and it just kind of surprises me when I look back to see when we're in it, we're dealing with it. We're kind of in it and dealing with it. And so we don't think about how much we're dealing with sometimes, but when you look back retro, retroactively and kind of see that, it really, it was a surprise to me to think about how much has gone on and poor employers that have to deal with all this. Uh, but the CARES Act I mentioned and the, the FFCRA, those are two gigantic pieces of new law. Normally we see maybe one or two of these huge new laws enacted maybe every 10 years or maybe every five years. But now we have two within a few weeks in 2020, and then we see this expedited rulemaking process that follows uh, the regulatory agencies like the DOL, all putting out rules and clarifications and trying to help explain the details on how to comply. You know, the DOL and IRS not only put out formal regulations and notices, but they also put build out FAQ docs and web pages that in this year, that, those included over 200 clarifying FAQs just on that FFCRA leave. So I guess maybe that's another surprise I found this year was the ability of the federal government to publish rules and FAQs so amazingly quick, quickly. 
uh, even though it didn't feel quick enough in some situations, it was still really fast for a governmental response. And that, of course, for employers translates into an overwhelming burst of education and implementation. Um, and again, that was just the federal response. We look at what the states did, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. Um, but we tracked the state COVID-19 developments, and we saw over 200 new rules implemented across the states. So that's an average of four to five pieces of new guidance in each state. And again, that's just compliance, really, that I'm talking about. There was plenty more uh, on the employment and on other levels. So I guess I'm continuously surprised at the number of rules that employers have to track and follow and deal with, and especially surprised at the speed, at least for this year, that agencies have been able to publish new guidance. Kind of makes you wonder what it, why it takes them so long on a regular non-pandemic uh, basis. Um, and it makes you wonder why we need so many rules, but those are both issues for another day. Yes, for sure. I mean, I don't know if it's a good thing that they were able to accomplish so much so fast, or if it is something that sets the pace for the future. So, you know, right. I, think we'll, I think we'll have to wait and see. Well, if you could pick one word to describe the state of employee benefits in this country, what would it be and why? So I struggled with this question just because there's so many good words. Uh, but the word I settled on was necessary. And the reason I settled on that is everyone needs to have some confidence and reassurance that they have some level of employee benefit coverage. Um, that helps us know that if something goes wrong physically or mentally, that we won't be on the hook for the whole cost, right? Um, and the majority of our country gets their benefits through their employer plan. And the very high majority of those are, are pretty happy with the arrangement going through their employers. Uh, for those that don't have it through their employer, they still need it, right? So uh, employee benefits encapsulates this idea of insurance coverage and medical, dental, vision coverage is at the top of that list. Um, so necessary, we need to have this coverage. In the pandemic, everything is amped up. Um, anxiety goes up, um, not only with respect to COVID-19, which is, you know, you have anxieties about contracting COVID-19, um, but that's one thing. COVID-19 itself is still so young as far as its impact and long-term health benefits. So. No one really wants to contract COVID-19 and no one really knows what it costs right now, right? We, we kind of have an understanding because we're, we're here in the world, in, in living in that world, um, but most people don't. If you get COVID-19, what's the cost going to be if you're admitted to a hospital or placed in an ICU or put on a ventilator? Those costs, I think what we've estimated are around eighty dollars to $90,000. So that immediately raises anxiety that unknowing for most people what this would cost. What do I have to pay if I don't have coverage? And then beyond that, just the chance of COVID-19, um, uh, beyond the ch that chance of COVID-19 infection, people are dealing with their prior health conditions. Um, we know there were restrictions on so-called elective surgeries, right? So people are foregoing care and treatment because they can't get into a doctor or because they're fearful uh, that the chance of additional complications goes up in the pandemic environment, um, that individual has to go to a doctor's office or a hospital where other people are, are sick, um, including those with COVID-19. So the pandemic here has just really raised the stakes immensely for those that need care, treatment, surgery, or other help. And that in turn raises concerns and anxiety around the costs. If I go to get my hip surgery done, 
or my knee surgery, whatever it is, and then I contract COVID-19, now I have two huge costs to deal with rather than one. So it all just goes back and re-highlights this idea of insurance as the backstop there. Knowing that insurance will pick up any catastrophic costs, I now can proceed with more confidence that I'm okay, at least financially, right? That doesn't necessarily address the uh, mental side of it or the uncomfortable feeling of not wanting to contract the virus, but knowing you have access to your network of doctors, pharmacies, nurses, that helps build confidence, um, but it's necessary to have the coverage to gain the confidence. So that's why I think necessary is, is my one word. I think that's a great word. And I think that, you know, certainly the landscape of, you know, how care is delivered and all of those kinds of things will have evolved quickly as well this year, um, as you know, same as in the compliance world. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, how things continue to evolve. Well, there's right. a lot of data to digest in the trend report, but for an employer who may be looking for specific direction on how to make a meaningful near-term impact with their benefits program, what's one action you would recommend they take? Yeah, I would say look to your employees. Um, take some time to really understand what your employees value and need from their benefits package or packages. This is going to depend heavily on the type of industry you're in, the types of employees you employ, and the types of goals and values you have as a company. Um, but going to your employees is very important and getting that feedback on what they value um, high earning employees obviously may have a very different need and uh, want than a low earner, right? So if your employee base is younger or, and healthier, you may have a different strategy than if they're older and less healthy. Um, if you want employees to stick around, you may have a different approach than if you have high positions where your expectations might be lower on employee retention. But either way, whatever, wherever you are in the world with your industry, and your employee base, your employees generally know what they want. So take a minute uh, to listen to them, figure out and track the trends on their needs and wants. Um, I also have to throw in a plug, I'm a compliance attorney guy, right? So I would also say, look into the compliance issues, um, but there are compliance considerations for any type of employer-sponsored health plan. So if it's just one action I have to choose, I'd say talk to your employees if I had two I'd say talk to your HR benefits team about compliance, make sure they have the resources and support to properly follow the laws and requirements that apply, and that will help keep them out of trouble. That's great advice, Chase, and I agree. And I think, you know, in the way, as you mentioned, talking to their employees, I think employers are going to find, you know, they've become much, uh, much better at communicating with their employees in this virtual world. Right. So let's jump into the compliance section, specifically in the trend report. Even before COVID, benefits compliance was complicated, to say the least. I can only imagine what your life has been like since March. From your experience sorting through it all, what advice do you have for employers who are trying to navigate the current environment? Wow. Yeah, it's been a, a fun six months for sure. <laughs> Uh, but it's a huge challenge and it feels like the challenges just keep coming, right? The hits keep coming for 2020, but I'd say first find some time to go for a run or bike ride to clear your head and then it makes it easier to focus. Uh, but the number one thing really I would say is to be flexible. 
I know that may seem trite here in the pandemic world, but flexibility really is so key here in a few different contexts that I want to talk about. First would be flexibility with your employees, right? Understanding that their situations can vary across the board on how they're experiencing this pandemic. The work from home arrangements, as you mentioned, remote work, the schooling situations, and the work arrangements. Obviously, some jobs and positions have more flexibility than others, but just that idea of being flexible and, again, listening to your employees. Second would be flexibility with your employee benefits strategies. We spoke a lot about this in the trend report, but the idea of remaining fluid and adapting to the changes. We used in the trend report this idea of water and ebbs and flows and that idea of being fluid and flexible, but um, extending eligibility beyond what was previously considered traditional is one thing we've seen a lot. Changing contribution strategies to help furloughed employees. Um, adopting some of the flexibilities allowed by the IRS on mid-year election changes to help employees make adjustments to their medical FSA and dependent care accounts, um, and then making plan administrative adjustments to account for this really difficult issue of um, outbreak periods um, that extend COBRA and HIPAA special enrollment right windows. Um, that's a huge challenge, right? It's tied to the end of the pandemic as, as announced by the White House. And so this extension continues indefinitely as far as we know now. But all of those really require a level of plasticity, um, fluidity, and adjustment. So with respect to employee benefit strategies. And then the third thing would be flexibility with plan administrators, carriers, and other vendors. Just understanding that they all those three all have their needs and their concerns and their own specific requirements based on what they're willing to do administratively. So knowing, for example, that carriers may have an end time to their flexibility of continuing eligibility for non-active or furloughed employees, that would be one uh, thing to consider. Or a vendor has their own practice in administering FSA election changes or even COBRA payments during this extended uh, outbreak period COBRA election uh, time frame. Some administrators will choose to continue coverage and pen claims while they wait for the COBRA beneficiary to elect. And other uh, vendors might terminate coverage and reinstate and pay claims if the beneficiary decides to later elect. Those are both compliant options according to the DOL. So vendors may have a preference for one or the other and the employer may have to live with that preference. So that's another context of being flexible, working closely with and understanding vendor preferences. Um, so really those three categories of flexibility uh, with employees, with benefit strategies, strategies, and with plan administrators and vendors, those all create huge challenges, of course, but remaining flexible and just understanding or even knowing that changes and adjustments are part of this process and not you know, sort of staying flexible, not knowing 100% how things will work out. That all may feel tiring by now, uh, since the unknown and the unplannable is part of our bigger life outside of work, but it really is the key in my mind and the biggest piece of advice that I would submit to an employer trying to navigate this sea of 2020 madness. I agree. I agree completely. I think flexibility is probably the primary word for to address 2020 in all aspects of our life. So um, right. 
There's been a flurry of new regulation this year, Chase, and I know you touched on a couple of them in your general comments, but what are the most notable changes you think emerging from COVID-related regulation at both the state and federal level? Yeah, so much, but at the federal level, I mentioned it, those two new major laws, the FFCRA and the CARES Act, and really high-level FFCRA provides additional leave uh, for those, and it's paid leave for those who are directly impacted by COVID-19. Um, so those new paid leave laws are complicated and they include taking leave to care for a child whose school or daycare has been closed because of COVID-19. So really new reasons for taking leave that employers haven't really had to deal with in the past. Uh, now those, that, those rules apply only to employers who are under the 500 employee threshold and they generally expire at the end of the year. So for larger employers, those leave protections are less impactful. Usually uh, larger employers have leave policies in place that will pick that up and they just have a little bit more flexibility because they are larger. So there's that with the FFCRA. Uh, the CARES Act though goes further than just leave and it, and it lasts a little longer. And so there's some other um, developments here that are important for employers. One is that it provides protections for COVID-19 testing coverage. So this would apply to the plan, but it, basically that testing has to be covered with $0 cost sharing to the employee. So having that additional requirement and that affirmation for the employee, they can get at least the testing covered. We're still waiting on the treatment being covered with zero. We thought that might be part of what Congress would enact later in the year, but we haven't quite seen that yet. The CARES Act expanded telehealth coverage. Uh, it permits, uh, but doesn't require, employers to waive deductibles for all telehealth or remote care services without adversely impacting HSA eligibility. So that's kind of a big deal. We've been waiting a long time for someone or anyone at the federal level to really address this issue. Whether the IRS or somebody else could have done this earlier would have been helpful. Um, but this issue that telemedicine or telehealth generally disqualifies someone from HSA eligibility. So employers have been a little bit tepid to the idea of expanding telemedicine services. Um, but obviously with the pandemic and everyone at home, telemedicine, telehealth has really taken off. But now employers can pursue that. In some states, it's required if you have a fully insured plan that you have to expand telehealth but you can do that now without worrying about the HSA issue. That's somewhat temporary. It's only for plan years beginning on or before the end of 2021. So it's not permanent, but you could see it becoming permanent. Uh, but it's one of those laws that employers have to consider. In addition, the CARES Act makes it okay to reimburse yourself from your HRA, FSA, or HSA to pay for non-prescribed over-the-counter drugs and it also added menstrual products to that list. So this is actually effective going back to the beginning of 2020 and there is no expiration on it going forward. So if you remember, this was part of the ACA, this a rule that said drugs and other medications had to be prescribed by a doctor in order, to be, in order to be considered medical expenses to have reimbursements from those accounts. But CARES Act re reverses that and adds menstrual products to the list big change. I think most people welcome that change. We all love having more items that we can purchase on a, on a tax advantage basis. So this helps with that. Um, the last thing I'll mention here 
Uh, again, this is a, an additional change. This one a little bit under the radar, but the CARES Act uh, changed some of the rules regarding the taxation of employer-provided student loan repayment. Um, in the past, while employers could set up educational assistance programs, they couldn't repay student loans on a tax advantage basis. Educational assistance is more about uh, current educational expenses, such as enrollment in a university or a professional development training program. But student debt could not be just paid off by an employer. That would be considered income to the employee. But for 2020 only, this one is very short, uh, but employers can step in and pay up to 5250 on a tax-advantaged basis. Um, but Again, aside from the over-the-counter menstrual care product change, these changes are mostly temporary. But once you get the temporary changes, you can easily see it developing into a permanent change. Citizens start talking about it. Lobbying groups start lobbying about it. And everybody's liking it. That's when Congress likes to step in and make a permanent change that when they know it's a win for their constituency. So these could all be permanent changes eventually and therefore could become a bigger part of an employer's overall benefit strategy, even though we kind of think of the CARES Act in the context of the pandemic. On a state level, lots of rules on telehealth and COVID-19 testing coverage and a general trend to relax premium payment deadlines for those that might be experiencing financial stress. Uh, and then of course, paid sick family and medical leave laws. We're gonna talk about those in a minute here. That's a lot of unpacking there. So a lot of a lot going on and you know, and I'm certain that as you said, you know, there'll be an appetite for much of that to become permanent. So we'll see, we'll see how that all plays out. The Affordable Care Act remains the subject of much discussion. I mean, I think I see something about it almost daily, especially with the Supreme Court set to hear Texas versus the US in October and a presidential election in November. There's a lot of uncertainty, but from your perspective, Chase, what does the future look like for ACA and what are the potential ramifications for employers? Oh, wow. So this one is one that is really amped up over the last week. Uh, but thinking about this uh, Supreme Court case of all the news that has unfolded since uh, we published the report, the biggest from our perspective has to be the passing of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg which is really sad news. Uh, anytime a Supreme Court justice passes, it's big news. But then there's the no notorious RBG, right? What an amazing woman, a person and judge, so bold, courageous, and fearless, and just did a lot, so much in advancing uh, women's causes. So I can't say enough about RBG. I hope you all have time to reflect and, and learn from her life. But looking forward, as we've unfortunately had to do very quickly here, the court right now, uh, only has eight justices. So that means there's a potential for four, four splits in decisions if a case comes before the court, before that seat is filled. Obviously the GOP is pushing very hard to fill that, seat as fill that seat as soon as possible, even before the election. So if that happens, it would result in a dramatically different court than the one that reviewed the original challenge to the constitutionality of the ACA's of ind individual mandate back in 2013. If you remember that, that was uh, Chief Justice Roberts. Uh, his opinion swung the decision in favor of the ACA by saying that Congress has the constitutional power to tax and the ACA's individual mandate 
data is nothing more than a tax. Um, now, this case is back before the Supreme Court because Congress back in 2017 took that tax and made it zero dollars. And so you can, uh, the argument is that because there's the, the tax is now zero, there's no real tax there that the individual mandate is being justified with. So in this case, you could, you could easily see a writer-leaning court now reviewing the case. The timing of this is important. Oral arguments for the case are set for November right after the election. So depending on the nomination process, the court could still be eight justices or it could be nine with a newly appointed just, justice. But that leaves a lot of uncertainty. As if we didn't have uncertainty before, this amps up that uncertainty when it comes to the fate of the ACA. We just did a separate podcast, excuse me. We just did a separate podcast on this topic, Kim, the Benefits Compliance Podcast. That digs a little bit deeper into this issue overall, the impact on the elections with the potential for legal challenges to the election itself, both at the presidential level and the congressional level. But for the ACA, the Supreme Court decision could be one thing, and the elections could be a whole different thing. If the ACA's individual mandate is deemed unconstitutional, then the question is whether the entire ACA comes down with it. That's kind of this Jenga tower or Jenga game idea. If one piece comes out, does the whole law fall as a result of that? But if the rest of the ACA stands, or if the court holds the individual mandate constitutional, then the election results really hold the cards uh, describing the fate of the ACA. If the GOP maintains some level of control of the White House and or Congress, they'll probably continue to chip away at the ACA uh, through other means, as we've somewhat seen over the last few years. If the Democrats take control, then we'll probably see a reaffirmation of the ACA, perhaps the addition of a public option and then other small fixes to the ACA. And this is really pursuant to Joe Biden's health care plan. Remember that Biden was Obama's vice president when the ACA, sometimes called Obamacare, right, that, back when that was enacted. So Biden has a lot of interest in upholding the ACA rather than tearing it down and going further left with a single payer option. But we'll just have to see. It's going to be a very intriguing few months here with the uh, Supreme Court replacement and the elections right in front of us. Intriguing is the right word. So I think that, uh, you know, we've, we've, I, we've got a lot yet to go on in 2020. And uh, so, you know, I'm, I'm interested in seeing again how it all plays out. So Chase, I want to read a quote from the trend report. Ultimately, whatever strategies employers chose in response to the pandemic will affect their strategy in response to the pandemic's end. Can you elaborate on this with examples of choices made and their impact going forward? Yeah, this was something we were really learning as we were going as well throughout this year. Um, but my mom used to tell me, whatever decisions you make now can either open or close doors later, right? That was some good parent advice. I think she was trying to help me make good choices uh, and work hard so that I would have options down the road in my life. Uh, but that same concept applies here how an employer reacted at the beginning of the pandemic may have opened or closed doors on how they react coming out of the pandemic. Now, in this context, there may not be a good or a bad decision at the beginning of the pandemic, 
those decisions uh, were usually driven by the employer's needs and the business conditions, right? But here are a couple of examples of this idea of what you did back then may impact what you do going forward. One would be plan eligibility. If plan eligibility was lost upon furlough or layoff, that results in a COBRA event. So that was really the only consideration. Um, if you had that choice of losing eligibility, a reduction in hours or a termination of employment that results in a loss of eligibility is a COBRA event. So the employer just had to offer COBRA. Then later, if those furloughed or laid off employees are brought back, the employer will have to make a new offer of coverage upon return. Um, for larger companies, you have the ACA's employer mandate, which always throws in uh, quirky rules. But that basically has a rule that says if you rehire an employee within 13 weeks or 26 weeks, if you're an educational institution, then that employee is a continuing employee when you bring them back. That means no waiting periods can be applied upon uh, the return to work. So the employee is re-offered coverage immediately upon rehire. So that loss of eligibility in the beginning of the pandemic kind of sets in motion a required set of considerations when the employee comes back at the end of the pandemic. Obviously, we're, we're not quite at the end of the pandemic here. And by that, uh, I mean the time at which the employer decides to start reopening for business, even if it's a reduced or an adjusted opening because of pandemic-related restrictions. But think about, on the other hand here, if the employer in the beginning chose to ex extend eligibility back at the beginning of the pandemic response, now a different set of considerations is set in motion. First, they'd have to work closely with the carrier or the stop-loss carrier if they're self-insured to make sure that the carrier is okay with that eligibility extension. Most carriers were okay with some type of extension as long as premiums continue to be paid, right? They want their money. But that kind of gets back to the idea of remaining flexible overall. Employers and carriers have to be flexible to adjust for the changing situation. But if the employer is a large employer, uh, just a quick note on this, a large employer using the look back measurement period method, then they'll have to continue coverage through the end of the stability regardless, even if the employee has a furlough or reduction in hours as a result of a furlough. So that's a tricky rule to navigate. But in any event, once eligibility is extended, employers then have to figure out how to handle premium payments. Payments. Will they ask employees to continue making their contribution knowing that the employee has no work? Or will they pick up the tab on their behalf? Or will they be okay with the employee missing payments during the furlough, but then having the furloughed employee pay in arrears when they return? Those are all allowable options under the rules. Obviously, larger employers, again, have the, the affordability rules under the employer mandate, but um, where, wherever they land here, they had to make that choice on premium payments. And then they have to clearly communicate all that to employees to set appropriate expectations. And upon return to work or rehire, again, the employer's considerations would be different. Instead of determining whether a particular employee is a continuing or a new employee, they would have to consider issues regarding collecting premium payments in arrears. So the bottom line is that the choice or decision up front sets the employer on a different path with a different set of con considerations. Um, so that's really what I was talking about there in the trend report. One final note on this issue, and that is a common issue no matter the employer's choice, 
That's the willingness and necessity to work with carriers, plan administrators, and other vendors to collaborate on appropriate and timely responses. And you know what? We already talked about this part, so we'll just scratch that final note. Okay. Well, I think I think the challenge with you know as you speak to it in this in this section, you know what you did in the beginning affects you know how you're going to have to handle things in the end. I think the the real challenge for employers was they didn't know what they didn't know, right? You don't know how right. long this is going to last. You didn't know the impact on your employees. So hopefully, um, you know, as we mentioned flexibility, there'll be flexibility in, you know, everyone's understanding as employers try to figure, you know, this out and do what's best for them and their employees. So right. um, it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. But you know, there was no rule book for this. So it, you know, very challenging for employers and, you know, hopefully with guidance from NFP advisors and, you know, our wonderful compliance team, you know, we're all, we're all in a good place. Right. Well, leave regulation is becoming more complex as states and even municipalities issue new rules around employee sick time and FMLA. What are the best practices to consider as employers refine their own leave policies? Yes, this is the huge new burden that employers have now, particularly multi-state employers. States are enacting or modifying their leave laws very quickly in response to the pandemic and COVID-19. And some are just doing it because they want to, and that's been a general trend over the last year or two. A quick example there, New York, which is always at the forefront of these laws. I feel like New York, California, Massachusetts always kind of lead the way here, but New York, right after they expanded their New York PFL, that's paid family leave, which was already in place and has been for a few years now, they expanded those protections to those that are dealing with a COVID-19 related issue. The legislature in New York also around the same time enacted a brand new paid sick leave law that takes effect on January 1st of 2021. So that was very confusing and, and most didn't really pick up on the new paid sick leave law since it was enacted right during the height of the pandemic, in, especially in New York at that time back in March, April, May. So uh, that was a huge challenge. That's a huge challenge, but it kind of illustrates the, uh, first of all, the difference between paid sick leave and paid family and medical leave. Paid sick leave is really just an entitlement for employees to accrue and use sick time. So think of it more like a mandated PTO for sick reasons. Paid family and medical leave, we're really talking about paid time off, benefit protection, and job protection for a specific list of reasons relating to caring for one's family. And by the way, most of the state paid family and medical leave laws apply uh, to family member when we say that term family member, it's very broad and even includes uh, things like parents, in-laws, and employees' domestic partners. So that's another curveball for many employers, figuring out which employees have these other dependents, uh, including domestic partners who also have protections under the state leave law. So those state leave laws sometimes go a lot further than many employers would think. Um, and the reasons have been expanded too leave protections for those impacted either directly or, or a family member has been impacted by things like domestic abuse, uh, sex trafficking and or sex crimes, rape, violence, or even bullying. So really just a 
complex web that these states are spinning on this. Uh, but th really, there's three things employers can do here. First is to learn the law. They have to pay attention and educate themselves, no matter how painful that is. But they've got to know what the law requires. Second, they have to internalize the law. That means they have to make sure their leave policies meet the minimum requirements under that state law. And then third, and this is by far the most challenging, they have to incorporate the law into practice. That means they have to map out how the law will interact with the employer's PTO policy, the employer's disability policy. So you think about short-term and long-term disability and how it interacts with other required laws like FMLA or FFCRA, at least for this year, and other state laws. For example, California has probably seven or eight different leave-related laws for, uh, first of all, they have state-mandated disability, state-mandated disability, pregnancy leave, family leave, and others. So it's just a huge challenge. If there was one best practice that I would suggest, it would be to look back and see what leave scenarios have arisen most commonly within your organization, and then work out a sample chart of how the laws interact. The most common scenarios we see are maternity leave, maternity leave with the mom or the baby having medical complications, an employee's own disability, um, an employee caring for a family member with an illness or a disability, and then this more recent one taking leave to deal with school or daycare closure issues. That one will hopefully be less permanent. But just mapping it out, it feels like the only way to really see how that interaction between laws and between the PTO and the disability, you know, some of that is the ability to step away from work and have job protection while other um, rules relate to how, to how that employee will be paid. And so a map or a chart to show that in a couple of different scenarios is a great way to better understand the overlay and uh, interaction between the laws. So yeah, Kim, it's very challenging, and uh, uh, hopefully that those uh, ideas help in tackling that challenge. Thank you very much, Chase. I think that uh, you know every year we we lean more and more on the strength of our compliance team, and you know this year has been uh, you know that that certainly has been uh, you know the case, and even more so. So. I know that you know NFP clients and advisors appreciate uh, all the support that our compliance team gives them and all the guidance that you guys provide. Well, I want to thank everyone for joining us on our first uh, in the in the U.S. Benefit uh, Trend Report podcast series, and I want to thank Chase for all of his uh, expertise and guidance here. You bet. Fun to talk. Everybody, have a great day. <laughs> <laughs>